Welcome to the Wellness for Educators podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Kennedy. Welcome, everyone. For today's episode, I'm wicked excited to have Jonathan Santos Silva, who is the founder of the Liber Institute and chair of the Board of Ed podcast. Thank you so much for being here, Jonathan. Oh, it's good to be here. Wicked good. I haven't heard wicked in a long time. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm bringing you back to, to some New England. <laughs> right, back to New England. <laughs> Excellent. So, Jonathan, I wanted to start off by asking you, what prompted you to found the Liber Institute? Oh, thanks uh, for that question. My career in education started on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. Taught high school math on the reservation and um, really loved my experience there. We moved back to the East Coast after a couple of years, um, but a long-term goal or desire of mine was to become a school leader or a district level leader and go back to the reservation um, and try to make a positive impact at a higher, you know, not necessarily a higher level, like that teaching isn't a high level, but like at a, a maybe a um, higher viewpoint, right? Where you can kind of get above the hedge line, so to speak, and kind of look at the systems. And so I, I was able to return. So I taught here 2010 to 12, and I returned in 2017, August of 17. And uh, what I realized was I was going through, I was working for a nonprofit. I was going through a fellowship to become a school district leader after having led a school for a while. I just realized that as much as I wanted to have an impact on uh, education and on indigenous communities, I wasn't necessarily built for the politics of what a district level leader has to you know, go through. That's not where I'm interested. And so over time, the Library Institute came out of that desire to wanna to have an impact, but to wanna work with educators and with leaders as opposed to getting back into that system and getting into the politics. So our mission at the Library Institute is to embolden and equip indigenous young people, families and educators to transform schools and the communities they serve. And so it's about being that like critical friend or partner walking alongside the homegrown leaders, the folks who are from the community and are going to be there for the long haul. Uh, because we believe fundamentally that they have the, you know, the folks who are, are most proximate to a challenge or a problem are most likely the ones best equipped to address it. Unfortunately, that's just, you know, not the way things work often with white supremacy. We just don't assume that communities have the strengths and the assets, but, you know, we, we're able to kind of work differently. I love the idea of empowering uh, and as well as walking alongside those words really resonates um, to really get back to, you know, them being the ones who create the change, you know, and, and you're there to help coach them. And I know that that was one of the things that um, I read about the work you're doing. The Liber Institute is very much focused on the coaching aspect. How is coaching supporting the mental health of those that you work with? I mean, first of all, you know, we are very intentional about using the word emboldening versus empowering because, you know, I've done a lot of, not a lot, but quite a bit of training. I've received training and then been able to provide it around, you know, broad-based organizing and power and how communities build power to create change together. And power is this is the ability to act. So everyone has a power. Everyone has power. All communities have power. And so I'm intentional about emboldening because number one, people ask me what I mean, whereas empower people think they know what you mean. And I'm able to say, you know, I'm not empowering anyone because I can't give them power that they already possess. And so coaching, the reason we do coaching, why I like it so much is because it is all about kind of drawing out what's already in people, right? At least the style I use. I always lead with questions. So if I was coaching you, Catherine, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. Like, tell me about the challenge. What's going on? You know, what role does so-and-so play? What, what did they, you know, when, if you say, well, they won't let me, I'm going to say, well, what did they actually say? I want to really draw out and bring back to the front, you know, everything you've experienced and seen. And then I'm going to follow up with questions like, okay, so what do you want to do about it? What would you do if you, know, if you knew nothing would uh, go wrong or if you knew you couldn't fail? Um, you know, what's the craziest thing you've thought about doing um, that you've stopped yourself from like stuff like that to get just open you up. And invariably, what I find is that whether it's a, a teacher or a principal or some other leader in the community, like we said earlier, or we alluded to, they generally have a sense of what they want to do. They generally have a sense of what they want to get done or what change they hope to see. 
they may not necessarily see a direct line between that challenge or that, that approach and what they possess. So my job as a coach is to help them see that. And so how that impacts mental health, I think is like, I don't know, I don't want to say it's the root of all mental health issues, but a lot of the issues we have with our mental health and wellness orbits around negative self-talk and self and beliefs we have. So when we think that the challenges we face are more than what we are equipped to handle, you know, we may feel feelings similar to depression, like oh, it's never going to change, hopelessness, futility, right? These are not feelings that are, you know, that, that, that are good. I mean, it's okay to experience negative emotions, right? You know, I say negative, not because they're bad, but like, you know, they, they feel bad, right? It's okay to experience those things. But when that becomes like the, the main feeling or emotion under which you operate, it doesn't feel good. And it doesn't often lead us to the change we want, right? But when you have a coach or a mentor or a partner in crime, so to speak, like an accomplice, who was like, well, if you don't, you know, do it, who would do it? Like, you're like the smartest principal I know, or you have this asset, this asset, and this asset in your team. You just haven't actualized it. When you start to help folks see that when you have a friend or a partner who could do that for you, then that sense of futility, uh, hopelessness, or depression can be, and I don't mean clinical like depression where you need real you know, treatment and stuff, but like the temporary kind of feelings of down, being down, they become, they get replaced with hopefulness, replaced with like a sense of self-efficacy, like I can do this, or if not me, then who would do this, right? And then, and those I think are, are, are move you in that positive direction. I think so much of like positive mental health is looking around and like, you know, having a strong sense of identity you know, sense of self-efficacy, like I can make things happen. I can do things. I do good work, you know, stuff like that, you know, like um, mastery and achievement and stuff like that. So the, like the flip side is before coaching, if you think nothing's going to change, cause I'm just not that good a leader, you can see why that person feels down. But when they start to experiment and try new things and see even incremental, like 1% type solutions, then you start to build momentum and you start to feel better. Um, and hopefully you help other people feel better too. Right. I love the distinction between empowering people and emboldening them. That was really eye-opening for me. So I appreciate that distinction. And then I love how you were talking about the coaching experience and how it draws out of that person's experience. So it really kind of puts it back on them um, to think through and uh, be the problem solver of their own, uh, like you said, the negative self-talk, the self-limitations, the self-doubt you know, working beyond what your current belief system is, I think is is huge. And I can tell you, like the negative self-talk does not uh, work for you. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, definitely works against you. So um, that is really helpful to understand and, and, and to hear your perspective on efficacy, like self-efficacy mm -hmm. pieces yeah. is really important. I know that you do a lot of work as well with um, that idea of the sacred affinity spaces. So mm -hmm. if you can talk a little bit for anybody who is not familiar with that, could you talk a little bit about what sacred affinity spaces are and why they are so important to things like self-efficacy and maybe even personal and professional alignment with, with your personal uh, passions? Sure. So the, that concept of sacred affinity spaces is not something that I created. It comes from some really interesting work out of uh, the California Bay Area, a, a woman named um, Farima Poor Kurshid did like a, I don't know if you'd call it action research, but like a, like a living kind of experience with a group of what she called critical educators of color. So black, Latinx, um, I believe Southeast Asian, Arabic, you know, folks from all different groups. So it wasn't like, I don't believe that they were like a, like a black or a Latinx space, but rather this uh, kind of intercultural mixed space of folks who, in, in her definition of cre uh, critical educators of color, are folks who, you know, their identity, you know, is strong, their sense of identity is strong, and they believe that they have some kind of responsibility to create, you know, equitable spaces for youth to learn in. And so the sacred affinity space was about, okay, when you're doing that very challenging work of creating those spaces within a system like ours in America, where that is not the norm, it's a labor it's a hard kind of work. And so where do you go to get reconnected to an energy, you know, a positivity of, of upliftment of like, you know, what we talked about with the coaching, 
where you are building on that sense of self-efficacy. Like I am a leader. I do have the skills I need. And, and if I don't, I can develop them. And so the sacred affinity space becomes a space where you can talk about, you know, pedagogy, right? Like what are we teaching or curriculum uh, or excuse me, how are we teaching? What are we teaching? But also a place where you can talk about those identity questions. And so I, if you go back to that um, report, I got to get cultivating sacred spaces, a racial affinity group approach to support critical educators of color. And so the idea is, like I said, it's not only to address the, the what, the how of, of teaching, but also like the identity piece of who is teaching. Who am I as a critical educator of color? Uh, where do I go to, you know, feel like I can be, you know, brave and bold and talk about what's bothering me, what I want to address and be kind of like affirmed in those thoughts and be in a community where other folks, maybe in a different campus at a different part of town or a different part of the Bay is also uh, grappling with that so that I know I'm not crazy, right? Like this idea of like wanting to create a space where equity, where black and Latino and other student uh, identities are affirmed and uplifted. I'm not crazy for that. I'm part of a community. And so I, Really loved that when I when I don't I don't I I can't even remember um, what did I get it from can't think of it right off the top of my head but like it's been a part of how we look at our work at the Library Institute because where we are right now focused primarily on Indigenous communities I know Indigenous educators that have grappled with some those same thoughts right like who I am as a as a Native person is as important to my teaching. I don't just take that identity off and leave it on a coat hook right by the side of the door. It comes in with me. So how do I um, ensure that the space that I create provides the space for my indigenous learners to do the same? And so we've talked about that and, and uh, we've done it, like I said, uh, we're, it's not as diverse here as it is in the Bay Area, but we've created it with a mix of indigenous and um, other peoples of culture and our accomplices. And I use the term peoples of culture rather than peoples of color because a friend of mine, uh, Professor Cornell Peewee Wardy, um, retired professor, uh, Kiowa and Comanche and Kiowa background, he says it's not our color that draws us together and that where our value comes, it's from our culture. Those values, that knowledge that is that we transfer from generation to generation, that's where the value comes. So as peoples of culture, to have spaces where we can come together and build on that self-identity to interact with like, what does it mean to be an equitable classroom? What are the types of questions I need to ask? What are the type of work I need to provide opportunities for my students or young people to engage with? Like it's a healing space because so often when you do this work, you're the only, right? You might be the only person of color or person of culture in your building. And then you're the only person talking about equity or inclusion or diversity in a meaningful way more than just the Saturday session or the Friday session. And so knowing that you have a community of individuals who are like, you know, struggling or working in the same struggle and you, know, you, you can throw ideas off of it, it becomes a healing space. So yeah, it's a big part of what we do. We've done it, um, we've piloted it with uh, teachers, we've piloted it with school leaders, and we've even done uh, work uh, with young people, you know, with young innovators, you know, so I just, I just think like the idea of creating the, I don't say safe spaces. I talk about brave spaces because like, I can't make a space safe for everyone or just because I just don't really know all the things that may trigger or do harm for you. And so it's, a, it's about coming into the space and, and, and like having grace that like, we're here to do, to, to grow together, not to do harm. So like not assuming that anything that is harmful is meant to do harm and just being able to like in the relationship of trust, call it out oh, that didn't sit with me or whatever, so we can grow and learn together. Um, and then, like I said, being brave enough to bring in that sense of vulnerability and, and being true about what you're struggling with, what you're grappling with, or what you need from the group so that you're, 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 you're growing, right? Like if you go into the space and expect the space to create the learning for you, that's not gonna happen. But you go into the space knowing that like you have the room and, and from, at least for me as a facilitator, that is the expectation that you come in and ask for and seek out what you need and then my role is to try to get it for you and give it to you if it can't easily be found within the space we have. Yeah, I have so many things <laughs> based on what you said to, to kind of follow up on. And um, just, again, just amazing work that you're doing. So one of the things that you mentioned was this idea of being 
the only person in the space um, to be working on equity. And one of my friends who you met through recently through last week's work that we were doing together, uh, Shamari Jones, he's at the Bellevue School District in Washington. And he is a administrator at the district level and is doing work around equity. And he and I were talking about it, that he is that only person <laughs> in that space to be bringing these things up. And, and it's, it's really, I love how you said it's like the brave space. He has to go into it. He, you know, he's the one who's always going into those spaces where, you know, he has to be vulnerable and he has to put everything out there uh, and, and um, to be able to help to liberate the systems of learning um, that they're working within. And so I think one of the other things that you mentioned was this idea of belonging to a space where I'm among others who will lift up the collective ideas. It's not just me. I'm not alone in this situation. I think that with that collective identity and also, you know, having your own personal identity within that collective brave space. I love how you said that too, I think is, is really also an emboldening piece too, because then, you know, you are not alone in wanting to move the field forward with, you know, critical educators and, and having those strong senses of identity and creating equitable spaces to learn. Um, just a really, really powerful movement. Um, I know one of the other things that you were talking about, and, and this kind of connects to that as well, is supporting many isolated rural communities like you do on reservations and specifically addressing the community, the, the mental health of young people, but also their families, as well as the hardworking educators and just in general, the community in general. What are some innovative ways that the schools and organizations that you are working with are helping to uh, you know, better mental health in that area? Sure. First, I want to shout out Dr. Curtis Acosta. I couldn't remember where I got the piece um, by uh, Farima Porkrasheed on cultivating sacred spaces, but it was from Dr. Curtis Acosta. I believe he's still at the University of Arizona. If you, if you or any of your listeners have watched the documentary Precious Knowledge about the um, uh, multicultural studies or the ethnic studies program down in Tucson, Arizona, he's one of the teachers that um, is featured in that. He's done incredible work in the classroom and then as he's gone on into higher education. So just wanna shout him out and thank him for exposing me to that. As far as like the uh, innovative things that I've seen in the community, I think the narrative, well, first of all, the education reform movement has so over-invested and focused on urban areas that like there's just a dearth of understanding of how poverty manifests in rural areas, the ways that it is both similar and unique to the experience in urban areas. And so there are probably a lot of things we've learned that we could easily pivot and apply in rural areas, but because no one really cares. And I don't mean nobody, but just like the big money doesn't care. They wanna to go to like a city where their money is gonna they can say, we touch you know, 50,000 kids. They don't care about you know 600 kids in the, um, in the rural area, right down south or on the res. So that being said, what I believe it creates is the conditions for local innovation and people taking up uh, challenges and addressing them in ways that like we wouldn't think in a city or we wouldn't think somewhere else. So like, for example, when COVID hit, COVID impacted everyone, right? It did not have, we, we, we talked about this ad nauseum, right? It, it, COVID itself isn't racist or classist. When it manifests in disproportionate ways, it's because of the way our system already operates, right? The disproportionate representation of low-income people and people of color and these um, front or people of culture and these front-end jobs, these front-line jobs, that's why, right? Or the inaccessibility of healthcare in some of our impoverished communities, that's why. And so pa the pandemic sent everybody home. What was different is that you might have infrastructure in an urban community uh, where uh, even if the kid doesn't have internet at home, there are you know, hot spots in the community at certain different establishments. Whereas on the res, like, first of all, you might be spread out 40, 50 miles from your school. You know, 30, even 30 miles from your school is a far cry. You're not just, and there's no public transportation. So you can't like ride the bus to get to like the library and sit outside the library and open up a device, assuming you have a device. So 
the first thing I saw was like the way that schools and districts moved mountains to go one-to-one. And so on one hand, I was I'm really uh, excited about it. On the other hand, I, you know, there's a part of me that's just like, we could have been one-to-one a long time ago. We could have and should have provided access to kids a long time ago, right? Because even when we provided the devices, the curriculum wasn't online. So it's a whole lot of other questions around like, if we trusted kids and families with devices, if we trusted kids and families with internet, if we trusted our teachers to devise innovative ways to convey information online or or virtually digitally, we might've been a little bit more prepared for this, right? But that being said, you know, not trying to pile on in this moment, but just celebrate that they got devices out there like with the quickness. And then, you know, here like in Pine Ridge, Rosebud, Standing Rock and the other different, you know, reservations we have in this community, they were figuring out how to get hotspots, right? So like, you know, like you might get from your cell phone company. And so that worked for some families, but again, you're rural. So if you're in an area where you're like down in the little valley or a dip and you're not getting uh, access to a tower, the hotspot didn't work. So then um, they were negotiating with internet providers, right? So like uh, the local internet provider to like get them to provide low cost internet access to families who traditionally didn't have access to it. And so a lot of that was partnerships with tribes, tribes agreeing to use some of their federal funding to front the bill for families to have internet. So that was another thing. There was one tribe and it was here in South Dakota. I just can't remember if it was um, Cheyenne River Eagle Butte or someone else, but they actually got in on an auction where the government was auctioning off, I think AM radio space uh, uh, and they bought the radio airwaves at auction and were able to broadcast internet. I don't know how that even makes sense. It turns my head over even when I think about it, but like it, it was incredible. So again, if you're like living somewhere where the, the radio isn't hitting you, you know, cause you need to have access, you know, uh, kind of like not sight lines, but like, you know, lines between where you are receiving and where the, the broadcast is being, is emanating from. But like that meant that at least geographically that whole reservation was covered you know and they were able to I, I believe there is a way where they can sell off excess bandwidth to folks off the res and then you become now you can generate some income to maintain that you know that system another thing like simpler uh ways uh we have a school um on uh, rosebud their mascot is the um the wildcat so they have like the family and community engagement vehicle they call it the wildcat wagon and the wildcat wagon was going out and um, dropping off work and, and resources and backpacks and also had hotspots on board so that while they were making deliveries, a kid could come out with the device that the school provided and download stuff that they needed. And so it's not a 24-7 solution, but a man, if they're not being creative. And so, I mean, there's just so many ways that you see the creativity manifest, but because it's not like, you know, Jonathan from, you know, Washington, D.C. or... LA and I think I know everything. So I'm going to tell you what to do. It's like actually the principal, the parents, the teachers in the community going, you know what, we have this wildcat wagon, we can put hotspots on it, you know, or bus drivers, the bus drivers, the same bus drivers that would have picked the kids up when school was in session, they were packing up the meals, putting them on the bus. And then the bus driver, they would have sometimes have hotspots on. So they would go through stop by stop and deliver breakfast and lunch that was a time where you would have internet, you know? And again, that's not a long-term solution, but it's, it, it's a fix if you don't have any way to, to log in. And then lastly, maybe like, and there's so many other ways that folks have done cool stuff that I've heard about, not just here in South Dakota, but across Indian country. But there's an organization on, on the Rosebud Reservation called Tiwahe uh, Glukinipi, which it's something about, uh, it, it translated, I can't translate it because I my, my Lakota is really weak, but it, it, it's something around the family and build, rebuilding and, and the family and making the family healthy again, something like that. And I apologize to the really wonderful folks who work there if I didn't get it right. But they have done a lot of cool stuff with schools over the years, including um, providing access to um, equine therapy. So like for those that are not familiar, equine therapy is using horses for therapeutic purposes. And so like uh, for those who are probably more knowledgeable than horses than me, they, they can correct me, but horses... Are, are, are known to be very like intuitive around emotion and they can sense when someone trying to ride them is anxious, is angry, is off. And so the horses will often get restless. And so one of the ways they motivate young people into like self-regulation and learning the skills 
to like calm themselves is because invariably almost every kid wants to be around the horses. And so it's like, Catherine, you got to calm down. She can sense it. And so like they start to, you know, regulate and learn the strategies to calm themselves so they can brush the horse, they can feed the horse, they can walk the horse and maybe even ride the horse. And so one of the ways Tiwahe Glucinibi has gotten innovative is they are experimenting with telehealth and equine therapy. So getting a horse, so they got cameras that they're, I guess they're installing in the barns and they're going to be able to broadcast these equine therapy sessions. Now it's not going to be the same because the horse is not going to sense me on the other side of the camera, but I can see the horse. I can watch the training. And then, you know, God willing, when folks are vaccinated or, you know, we have herd immunity and da, 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 da. Now you, you will be, you'll be dying to get to the campus so you can go and interact with the horses or that the horses can come to your school. So that's just like a couple of really, really cool examples of the ways that uh, indigenous educators and community leaders are like leveraging both just like their natural innovative spirit with also like these traditional knowledge bases and ways of knowing, right? Like the horse piece and they're bringing it together. And I feel like it's really example of how you meet the moment. Yeah, I love the idea of everybody working together community-wise to get everything that everybody needs in order to thrive in in such a weird time of our existence. Uh, COVID really threw us all for a loop and, and some more than others. So knowing that the communities are working together to better the situation for themselves, I think is huge. So can you share what learnings you have uh, from your indigenous friends and elders that may help those who are struggling to keep up in, you know, what you might call the rat race of mainstream mm. Western or American culture? Sure, sure. Um, so I'll, for one, I'll, I'll go back to Dr. Uh, Pee Wee Wardy, uh, Cornell. He's like such a cool dude. He's such a, like a, smart guy and a caring guy and just he looks at things in such an interesting way i remember when i first met him we were at a, um, a convening of primarily indigenous aspiring school leaders folks who were designing schools community-based schools primarily charter not exclusively they wanted to start these schools in their communities with the community engagement it's connected to uh it was a uh, the Native American Community Academy Inspired Schools Network. So NACA, Native American Community Academy, was founded in uh, New Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico, about 12 years ago, I think, 13 years ago, maybe now. And then because like like just the, the again, the indigenous perspective, when they were approached, you know, folks like, oh, you're a really great charter school, let's replicate, right? That's what we do. They were like, no, uh, we can't replicate this because if we replicated what we do somewhere else, it won't fit. What we can replicate is the process we went through so that other people can build schools that are as responsive to them as we are to Albuquerque. And so I worked for NACA Inspired School Network for a while. That's where I met Cornell and a bunch of other awesome educators. And I just was really blown away, taken aback as folks were talking about these funds of knowledge that they were tapping into, like the tried and true ways of thinking and approaching education, self-identity, like the connection to land and important place, sacred spaces and places. And at first I was like really, you know, fired up. And then I'm like, well, shoot, I identify as a black male, as a Cape Verdean, uh, a person of Cape Verdean descent. The Cape Verde Islands are off of West Africa. So I can't just drive to my sacred places. And then our community, our nation was built on the slave trade. Portuguese slavers bringing African people to those islands that were previously uninhabited and then through, you know, rape and things of that nature populated an island. And so that's not even where we originate. So where would I go? Where do I go? Do I go to figure it out? Is, is it Senegal or what? And Dr. Peabody Wardy Cornell, he says, well, you have the power, you know, we have, you know, he said, I like to talk about indigenous futurisms, Afro futurisms, right? Like how do we um, create you know, we can de determine for ourselves new places that have meaning and importance to us that are sacred to us. It's not to displace the places with historical significance, but it's about creating places that you can go and get plugged in. So that's one of the first place things I learned about uh, or, or I think about, and I would love to share with people is like to think about the people and the places that give you positive energy that build up your, you know, your reserve 
and those are important, right? Don't uh, overlook those, right? Um, for me, I find that often the places are attached to people. So like my grandfather in, in his home are, is a sacred place for me. And, you know, he's getting up there. And so he may not be there. He's not going to be there forever. And so, but now it is a place, it's a sacred place for me to be in his place, in his space, in his presence. Same thing with my parents, uh, you know, it's why we think a lot about um, our, our kids growing up and wanting to eventually get closer to New England again, because, you know, those are those are sacred people and sacred places for them. And so I think that's one thing I learned. It's just like there's the history and going to places that have historical significance and like kind of like being humble in the presence of what has happened and occurred here. But also thinking futuristically, like what are the places that I want to make meaning for me? So your place of where you live can be a sacred place. You know, if you are at home still stuck because of the pandemic, you can create a place within your basement, within your home office, within at your sun porch, you know, whatever, a place where you can go and just tap into something greater. So that's one thing I learned about. The other thing I learned, um, you know, just in teaching on the reservation and then living on the reservation and now working with folks that are on the reservation, time is a construct. And so like within the, like the Western world and the white supremacist society that we live in, like there is a lot of value for time. And so a lot of what I advocate to folks is like, you may be a teacher, you may, but you need to get a side hustle, right? Because you need to be able to make money because being able to generate money aside from someone else telling you what you make is not just about the value of the dollar, but it's about the time you can buy back, right? When you start to make your own money, you can determine what you do, right? So there is value to it within the broader construct of where we live. But outside of that, that time only has value in a relative sense. And so learning about things like, like investing your time in the things that matter to you, right? And so I remember the first time I went to a school board meeting and I was supposed to say start at 6.30 or whatever, or six o'clock. And I get there like a little early, not because I'm a super early guy, but because it was my first one and I didn't want to make a bad impression. You know, six o'clock rolls around, 6.05 rolls around, 6.20 rolls around. And it's like steadily getting fuller. And, but not all the board is there. And I'm like, when is this thing going to start? And having someone say, you know, for us, you know, on the reservation and for us as indigenous people, time is relative. And so we just trust that the board members, maybe they ran into someone, a family member, and that is important to them. And so they're going to devote their time and energy to that. And when they get here, they'll give it to us. And that was like, hit me because I'm, I had grew up in like, you know, you know, CP time, right? Like colored people time and thinking that like the, in the broader construct of society, that was like, it was a negative and it was like a joke on us, but in reality, it was a different way of valuing time versus relationships. And so that's something I think about too, is like, you know, your time, you know, you may not have, again, if you're, if you're on someone else's clock, you may not have the ability to just blow up your schedule, but to the extent that you do, how do you ensure that you fill your time with things that matter to you? So I'm making adjust, I had made an adjustment to my schedule that I used all fall into the winter and it worked really well for me. And we took some time off, came back and it doesn't work for me anymore. So I'm going through the process of thinking about how I want to change my mornings. So I open my morning in a way that fills me up, you know, so I'm making sure that I'm not skipping my, my morning walk. So I take my dogs out and I get my fresh air and I see, you know, I'm in the city, but I get to see the grass and the trees and the sun, you know, then I make sure that I have, you know, drop everything in read time, dear time. We used to have it for the students, right? I want for my young people. I want that too. Cause I, you know, the most successful people, the innovators, the, the, the big thinkers, they read, you know? So that's for me using, taking um, control of my time. And so I, I, I advise that for anyone, you know, like you teach all day and you know, and then you get out of school and you probably like, Oh, now I got a grade. Well, maybe, maybe you could take 30 minutes for yourself, especially if you're still at home, take 30 minutes for yourself, meditate, pray, make a fresh cup of tea, read a book, you know, put on an audio, you know, book audible, get on the treadmill and listen to your book, whatever, you know, your music, and then go, you know, 30 minutes is not going to kill you, you know, and maybe it's not there, but, you know, just thinking creatively about time. I think that's a real big thing I learned from, you know, my indigenous relatives. The other thing is like, both from my indigenous peers, but also just like coming up as a, um, as a Cape Verdean person, like the importance of relationships and uh, hospitality, sharing time, sharing meals, sharing your space with people. I think that bubbles over into like, I believe strongly that the straightest path or most direct path between you and your dreams is helping other people achieve theirs. So being hospitable and open with the talents and the assets and the values, you, the things you bring to the table. It can sometimes feel like if you're investing in other people, then when are you going to invest in yourself? 
and if you do feel that, then you might want to in inspect those relationships and make sure that they're mutual relationships. But I think that the you know good relationships, they don't feel that way, right? Like when you invited me to be on the podcast, it doesn't feel like a drain because we have a relationship of mutual mutuality. Like you've helped me, you know, and so I want to help you. You know what I mean? I want to be part of this project because you've been part of my project. So like, I think if your relationships are like that and you're building and, and pouring into other people, then you're going to receive. It kind of goes back to that idea of like drawing out of people. I think the visual I have is like, you know, in the kind of like uh, traditional way of thinking, we act like we have this precious well and the well is the source of the, of knowledge. Right. And if you want to, you know, I can drop a dipper in there and give you a little bit, you know, but it's mine. Right. Like that's the kind of like that banking mentality. Like I possess knowledge and I'm going to give you some when I'm ready to give it to you. Right. And that's also the way that like a lot of professional learning and consultancy work works in indigenous communities and other communities of culture, where it's like, we have this wonderful sacred well, and we'll give you some if we want. And I think that you have to disrupt that notion. Like I said, it's in you. The well is in you. And so it's teaching, it's drawing from what you have and sharing that with others. And then, like I say, in a relationship of mutuality, it's returned. And so you don't have to worry about, it's not a zero something. It's not a finite resource. It's infinite. And so it's like, the more you give, the more you get, the more, you, you know. So I think that those are probably not the only things, but some of the biggest things that I either have learned here or have had been, have had reinforced here because I see the echoes and what I learned as a child or coming up in what I'm learning now as an adult with, you know, in this new, in this new culture, you know? And I think, I guess the other part, maybe one more thing is the importance of a spiritual life. You know, um, I'm, I identify as a Christian or a believer. Um, I don't necessarily identify with like the, the, like the, the, the named Christian, you know, church in the, in the United States that I feel like is um, oftentimes on the wrong side of history whether that is the, the, the moderate Christians being on the wrong side of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement and other movements, you know, or now where we too often are more, more worried about who's sleeping with who um, and who's doing what than we are about our call to like reflect Christ in a loving way and to meet people's physical needs on earth before we can ever talk about meeting their spiritual needs. But that's besides the point. One thing I have learned on the res is that I, I was afraid or maybe, maybe not afraid, but anxious about folks learning that I was a Christian and connecting me with the history of violence done by so-called Christians throughout history. I was not so anxious or afraid that I didn't share my faith. I was very open about my faith. That's about who I am, but I was nervous. Like, well, people were like, oh, oh, he's one of them. I'm not interested. And what I've actually found is that people here, what resonated with them was that I was, a, they knew I was a praying person and they are praying people like indigenous folks, uh, or I would, let me just be more specific. So as not to try to generalize my friends who identify as Oglala Lakota, Suchangu Lakota people here on Pine Ridge and, and Rosebud and other folks as well. But those ones in particular, my, my friends that are Diné, you know, Navajo, as we say, Navajo, Diné people that are living in, a, in, in tune with a traditional way of life they have a relationship with the creator. They believe in the, in their inner relationship of all beings. And for them, it's not just those that walk and live and breathe, you know, so also trees, rocks, the earth, everything is a relative. And so there's a deep spirituality in almost everything that they do. And so it resonates with them that I'm a praying person, even though we may pray in a different tradition. And they see me as a brother and I see them as my brothers and sisters, you know? And so I say that that's the other thing is it's like, whatever you ascribe to, you know, whether it's God and the way that I think of him or Jesus, or if it's Allah, or if it's more like you're a Buddhist and it's not really like a, a being, but more like a way of living and being, you know, whatever that is, you know, I think you have to draw on that and strengthen that. People say sometimes that, oh man, you're such an optimistic and positive person. And I would be thinking, I think to myself, not really, like not really. I don't like look at the world today and be like, yeah, everything's going to work out because of the, out of the goodness of their hearts, our politicians are going to do what's right. I mean, everything that they do tends to suggest the opposite. I'm not very optimistic. I am very hopeful. 
You know, people ask me, how are you doing? And I say, blessed and highly favored. I got that from one of my mentors, Mrs. Sharon Hinton, because it's true. No matter what has happened in my life, whether it is something that I see as very good and enjoyable or difficult and challenging, I am blessed and I am favored, right? Like I am alive. I can breathe. I can walk. I can eat. I can provide for my children. And even on a day when I might not be able to do all those things, I know I believe firmly that my creator has me in the palm of his hand. And so I don't worry too much about those things. That's what I'm talking about. And in the same way, my brother, Doogee, Daryl Brownbull uh, on the red on, and down in Kyle, he would say the same thing. And he has uh, like a Christian tradition in his upbringing because that was what was required. Though he's older, but he lives a very spiritual Lakota way of life. He sun dances. He does inipi. He does all the ceremonies. He would say the same things. I can't worry about, like he said, I can't worry about this COVID because I can't control it. I try to be healthy. I wear my mask when I have to. Uh, and I stay and I pray and I, and I do inipi. And I am uh, faithful that creator is going to protect us. You know, it's not about like, F a mask, do what you want, lick door handles. You know, this is not real. It's not denying science. It's still, but it is about having a, a, a grounding in something spiritual and greater than you that you're like, yo, you got to focus on what you can control and those things you can't, you have to be able to continue to move. Cause like, if you're dwelling too much on things, you can't control that again. I think that gets you into that negative space of like, you know, approaching depression where you're like, ah, it's, uh, it's hopeless. Nothing's going to ever change. That being said, you know, there's people that have encountered a lot more stress and a lot more hardship than I have. So I'm not trying to say it's easy, but I encourage, like I said, my, my in-laws, my mother and father-in-law are Buddhist. My mother-in-law has a lot of peace in life, even as my father-in-law struggles with dementia and she's his primary caregiver. And of course, my, my, my brothers and sisters-in-law, um, they're helping because they're closer. We're here in, in South Dakota right now, but they're all in Rhode Island, but they don't have that, like they're not overwhelmed with dread or fear or concern because they have faith that they keep living right and, and stay in tune with the spiritual side of their lives, that things will, will work. There's a hope. And I just think that like, um, even with, even if someone's like, I'm a, well, I'm an atheist, like, what am I supposed to do? Well, meditate, get in tune with self. You know, if that's the highest form of power you can, you can relate to, then get in touch with self, get healthy, get right, get in like alignment you know, with how you see yourself and how you really, what you really bring to the world. Because as long as you think you don't have anything to give the world, then you can feel real down. But when you start to see that you bring value, that there are people who care about you and love you and who would benefit from the knowledge and the skills you have, even if you don't have a, a belief in a higher being, you can have a, a faith in that. And you can have faith in the relationships you have with people you trust. But I just think like at some level, having that spiritual grounding is vital, vital. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And thank you so much for sharing. I think the the spiritual grounding, I mean, I'm looking outside my window right now, watching the snowfall <laughs> outside. And I mean, you know, I tend to connect really well with nature. Um, I try to get outside, you know, at least even if it's just to take out the dogs, like you were talking about, you know, in the morning, um, I try to do something where it's outside with nature, just to you know, start the day with, uh, and I loved how you mentioned the interrelationship and we do have an interrelationship with nature. And um, so anything that people can do, I think to have that spiritual grounding is so important. And then also, you know, like you mentioned, creating a sacred space is really important, even if it's not some place, like you said, where you can't get to, um, or you obviously with COVID, you know, you might not be able to be with certain people that would be that create, uh, you know, sacred space for you or provide that sacred space in a person for you, you know, connecting with technology, if there's an opportunity to do so, even though it's, I still feel like it's, it's not a hundred percent the same, but at the same time, if that's what we have, we can do that. And then I loved your, um, your thoughts about the relationships and again, the inner relationships that you have with people and how, you have creative ways of time. You know, I, I think that we're so tied to our schedules and like this, 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 and you know, oh, now I gotta go here, now I gotta go there, now I go to go here. I think another thing that COVID has taught us is to slow down in, in some ways. And, you know, and unfortunately it has, <laughs> you know, uh, for a lot of people has been more affected than others. Um, in negative ways um, too, but but I think like it has taught us to just stop what we're doing and reevaluate a lot of what we do, and 
I, I like you are always like reevaluating my time and saying, is this really the way that I want to be spending my time, you know, um, mm -hmm. and then I reevaluate it and, and shift it if I need to. I, I loved everything that you shared. That's really helpful. And I think it's going to be really helpful for the listeners as well. Well, I would say, you know, especially you made me think about it when you talked about like your spiritual or part of your spiritual practice being the connection to nature, like the Japanese have a, a like a word for that. And I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, but it's Shinrin Yoku and it's forest bathing. It's like an art of like dwelling in the forest, like walking through and, and quiet in nature, the oxygen, the beauty and touching. So, you know, like the whole, like, when you think about the tree hugger, how like that, that image, but like, that's what it is, is like being out there and how, and they, and they have, uh, it's been studied, connections to mental health, to physical health. So I'm like, yeah, I mean, even if, like I said, if you just are like, well, I don't have, I'm not religious. I don't have a spiritual practice. Walk in the woods, walk out in nature, just be in the beauty of all of creation. You know, it gives you a grounding. I think the biggest thing for me with nature, where I was on the East Coast, it was the ocean. Now that I'm um, in the center of the country, it's the vastness you know, of, of, of our, of our country, right? Like the Badlands, if anyone ever has a chance to come to South Dakota, I recommend the Black Hills and the Badlands. When you think of yourself either juxtaposed against the size of the ocean and the vastness, or you stand on the edge and you see the grass waving like along the Badlands or something like that, it helps you put yourself in proper scale. The insignificance in a sense, right? Like this world is way bigger than you. And so like reconnecting to that in a healthy way it's a grounding thing. It's a grounding thing. Yeah, it's it's both grounding and humbling. Yes. Very much appreciate that, um, what you said there. Anything else that you wanna touch upon before we wrap it up? Um, I would mean, I would say first and foremost, like the Liber Institute, we're at uh, thelibreinstitute.org, T-H-E-L-I-B-E-R, institute.org. And then the, the, our podcast is at theboardofed.com, B-O-R-E-D. Uh, and that's because I'm just tired of the same old narrative around education. And I encourage folks to think differently. I share that not like as a plug, but to say by either method, if anything I say is deeply resonating with folks, they want to connect, I encourage it. You know, my email is jonathan at thelibrarinstitute.org. So I say that first. Uh, and then the second part is like, you know, to the extent that it seems like I have anything together, um, I'm on a journey, y'all, you know, I don't really have it all together. I'm just learning. I know more today than I knew yesterday and I'll know more tomorrow than I know now. Um, and, and it's a lot of it is because of being in relationship with people uh, who are sharing and exchanging ideas with me and helping me grow. And that's a, a big thing I encourage too, is like, you know, there's no reason why, like in the same way that, you know, I have built these strong connections with folks who are living a Lakota, uh, traditional Lakota way of life. So we have different, you know, um, you know, you know, deities, if you will, not, that's not the word, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like the way we in a church would say, this is what God is, and this is how it, and this is how they would say it, it's a little different, but we can find, we find so much common ground. I actually feel, find so many points of resonance in our spiritual walks so we can learn. And so in that same way, however you believe, whatever you, you, you are striving for, think creatively and you can find that connection with someone else. And in learning in someone else's culture and their spiritual walk and their mental health practices, the things they do, you may say, you know, at the end of the day, you know, that that forest bathing, that walking in the woods, that's for Catherine, it's not for me. But there's probably some part of it you could take. You know, maybe you're a gardener. Next time you're in your garden, you'll be more present because of what you learned from Catherine, you know, and vice versa. So I that's the only thing I would say is like, like I said, I don't really have it all together and I'm just learning it, but it's a part of that journey. And I think that's the, the, a, part, a big part of my, my mental health, though, is that I don't expect myself to have all the answers. I don't anticipate ever getting to all the answers. I just am committed to the journey of constant growth, right? It's like, it's like not thinking of perfect as like a destination, but as perfection as this ongoing process of being a better version of self. And I think like, like if we do that as educators in our personal life, it will naturally show up in our, in our, in our, in our professional life, whether you're a principal, a teacher, consultant, counselor, whatever. Uh, and then the other part of it is I would just say, don't wait until you have it quote unquote figured out to like engage the kids, the young people. I would argue that in being, you know, transparent and open, like, Hey, this is the journey I'm on. 
and talking to young people, it becomes like a, an exchange again. And there are things that your young people can teach you and that you can teach the young people. Um, but I think that it, that will get you uh, the space for grace for like that, like when you do blow it and you're not your highest self, right? And, and patient and, and comforting and you trip a little bit on the young people, they'd be like, yo, you know what? I get it. Jonathan was pissed. He's cool though, right? Like that's how it was when I was a teacher, but it was because I always tried to be transparent. Like I'm just still figuring this out. Um, and so I think that's important too. Whether you're the principal and it's with your staff or you're the teacher and it's with the young people that you serve or the families that you serve, it's being honest and open and transparent and then growing together. I love it. Uh, the message, I think the interracial, inter, back to the interrelationships, but also intergenerational uh, pieces is really important, I think, too. And, you know, all in all, I feel like one of the messages that I'm getting from you is that, you know, no matter what way you look at your spiritual journey or your sacred spaces, we're all walking each other home. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure where that phrase comes from, but I love it. I always go back to it. It's just mm. like, we're all in this together and we're walking each other home in whatever mm. way resonates with us. So Jonathan, I am greatly appreciative of your being here and for your sharing your experiences and the great that work that you're doing at the Library Institute. Uh, and Jonathan, if you want to go ahead and mention those uh, URLs and names one more time. Sure, sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, if you want to connect, uh, thelibrarinstitute.org or the board of ed, B-O-R-E-D, theboardofed.com. And I'm at Jonathan at thelibrarinstitute.org. I'd love to connect, to collaborate um, and share and learn from you as well. I'm sure y'all have some great stuff that I could learn from, so. Great, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay tuned for more episodes of Wellness for Educators podcast.